contentment. Contentment is a very biblical word, and Christian contentment has everything to do, to do with our relationship with money and things and stuff and our heart towards uh, those things. Uh, the, the idea behind contentment is the idea of sufficiency. When you're content, you have a sense of sufficiency in relationship to your money and your things and your possessions. Uh, one of the clearest verses in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. Be satisfied with what God has provided to you today. And like you, I struggle with this every day. It's a day-to-day thing. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like when, you, when you're sick, sometimes, you know, you have uh, good days and bad days. Uh, and with contentment, you have good days and bad days. And when I'm having a bad day with contentment, I often think about uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 30. And uh, let me find it. I, I just love this, this passage. But in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, it says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of God. We think about Things like the Lord's Prayer when Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Pray, uh, give us this day our daily bread. That's a prayer for contentment. Give me what I need today. I'm not going to think about what I need tomorrow or next month. Or, or I'm not looking for a surplus, God. I'm just looking for you to provide for me my portion today. I don't want to be rich. I don't want to be poor. I just want to be exactly where you want me to be in relationship to stuff and money and things. That's contentment. Now imagine, imagine a life of contentment. Imagine what our life would look like if we were content people. Imagine our relationships, the peace in our marriage, the peace with our kids, the peace with our world and our own heart. Imagine the lack of anxiety in our life if we were content with what God has given to us today. Imagine your relationship even with God, how it would dramatically change from a relationship of desperation, oh God, I need this, or oh God, please give me this, or oh God, to a a place of peace. Imagine your work schedule if you were more content. Imagine the need not to always schedule 10 things every day. Day, but maybe even to have a day of rest, a day of Sabbath. Oftentimes, when I struggle with contentment, I struggle to be by myself in a quiet time. I usually sometimes I need a TV on or the music on, or I need to be looking at the computer, or I need the show, or I need to watch a movie, or I need escape because I'm lacking contentment in my life. But imagine if I had contentment, I wouldn't always need. Escape. I wouldn't always need entertainment. I wouldn't always need to be pleased with some activity all the time. Some people that struggle with contentment, they struggle not with working too much, although that can be a problem of discontentment, but 
Uh, sometimes when we lack contentment, we don't work enough. We become lazy because we, uh, uh, a lack of contentment can, can be accompanied by paralysis. And we don't, we don't want to work because why work? Because I'm never going to get what I want. So I might as well just sit here because life is just never going to be satisfying. I'm never going to be satisfied. Contentment is important. We need contentment. And what 1 Timothy does, 1 Timothy 6, is it helps us. 1 Timothy chapter 6 helps us with contentment. And in particular, what 1 Timothy chapter 6 does is it gives us perspective. Everybody say perspective. It just gives us perspective. Perspective is a means of God's grace by which he works through perspective to work the miracle of contentment in our heart so that we can be satisfied with what we have and not always be focused on what we don't have. Perspective. Now, in our world, some people say, oh, it's the power of positive perspective. If you have positive perspective, then your life will get better. But 1 Timothy is not about the power of positive perspective. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, not, neither is it about the power of negative perspective. All 1 Timothy 6 is about and all that God is about in your life is the power of accurate perspective. When you have accurate perspectives, you can have a life of contentment. And there's two areas in particular where you need accurate perspective. You need accurate perspective about money. And you need accurate perspective about desire. 1 Timothy 6 tells us about those two things. First, you need accurate perspective about money. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to pick it up in verse 3. He says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and a constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining, here it is, here's the bad perspective, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. He's talking about false teachers. He's talking about a false Christianity. This false Christianity was coming into this church. These teachers were teaching that godliness, Christian godliness, was a means or a medium for prosperity. They were coming into the church and they were saying, spiritual life and your relationship with God exist so that you can have more. False teaching. Teachers were using the gospel not as an end in itself, but as a means to get something beyond the gospel, like money and possessions and material things, like a Cadillac and a Rolex and a butterfly collar. You know what I'm saying? This teaching would teach my wife to have big hair and big eyelashes.
This is very relevant. This is very apropos for our day, isn't it? There is a lot of this kind of Christianity that comes to you. And it says that Christianity is a means of extending your boundaries, of extending your land, of having more. You should have faith in Jesus so that you can have more things. 46% of American Christians believe that if they have more faith in God, God will give them more money. That's what we call bad perspective about money. That's wrong perspective. Accurate perspective goes in a different route. And Paul, very relevantly and very importantly for us Americans, and we're all struggling in this sea of materialism. All of us struggle with money and our relationship to money and things. So we need this accurate perspective about money. And he changes it. And he says in verse 6, he begins to give us the right perspective about spirituality and money he says now there is great gain in godliness with contentment here it is for so simple we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content he says, he says, here's accurate perspective about money. You didn't come into the world with money, and you won't leave the world with money. No moving truck is going to be following your hearst. Amen? When that day comes, your family members aren't going to be sitting around going, man, I wish you wouldn't have taken that house with him. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to say that. Dude, you're going out with nothing. There's just going to be you your soul, and your maker at the end of your life. That's it. And Paul wants the church, and this makes for a powerful, a powerful church is, is a bunch of people who realize that this is such a temporary life that, as the Egyptians used to say, we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive, or as we Christians say, we're going to be alive a lot longer after death than we were here. So at the end of the day, the accumulation of things and money and the anxiety and the, and the stress that we go through to, to, to accumulate more, it really is a bad perspective. The accurate perspective is, you brought nothing into the world, you're taking nothing out. So there must be something else that you need, but it ain't money. That's good perspective. That's, that's, that's life-saving, emotional-saving, uh, 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 ADD-healing, <laughs> distracting, needing, healing in our life is that perspective about the future. That life must be much more than what I wear or where I live. That my life is way more important than what I have. He goes on to say not only an accurate perspective about the future aspect of money, but also the present, like today. And he says here, he warns us in verse 9. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless 
harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money, this obsession with money, leads to all kinds of evil problems. The number one cause of divorce in America is usually financially related. Evil desires, senseless desires. When we put products before people, then your relationship with people will crumble. If you put prosperity before God, you'll walk away from the faith as soon as God's not providing for you what you think you should be provided. Your happiness and contentment in Christ will be measured by how much you have or don't have. And you will begin to wonder, here's the evil, here's the accurate perspective. If your spirituality demands a certain level of lifestyle, you will be led into disillusionment with God because you will begin to wonder in those months when you're not prosperous if God likes you at all. What have I done wrong? We're barely getting by. I don't have enough money to save for the A-team to get married. God must not like me. He's given me all these girls and no money to go with them. God, what have I done to deserve this lot in life? And when we get disillusioned, it leads us to denying the faith. It leads to evil desires. It leads to temptations to cheating or stealing or being inaccurate in our business dealings. It it leads to a snare, it says. That's very spiritual language. You know, Satan's really good at trapping us with a snare by these desires. He he can trap us and and hold us down and, and bring gravity in our life where God wants us to fly. That is accurate perspective. It's not all positive perspective. It's not all negative perspective. It's just accurate. It's so true to our life. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10 says that the man that loves money will not be satisfied by money. John D. Rockefeller said, I have made many millions, but they have not brought me any happiness. Henry Ford said in his mansion when he was interviewed by a newspaper as he was sitting on top of a hill in one of the biggest houses that's ever been seen, he was asked in that mansion, are you happy? And he said, I was happier when I was doing mechanics work. Perspective. Perspective about money. God tells us, in fact, God doesn't tell us, God gives us permission. Everybody say permission. You have permission to be content today with what you have. You have permission not to be obsessed with any more things. You have permission to be at peace with where you're at today. God is giving you permission to be set free from the bondages that this world so easily falls into. Be content with what you have. But we ask ourselves a question, which leads us to our second accurate perspective. 
what do I do? I've got these desires, Pete. I've got passions, man. I've, I've, got, I've got pleasures, and I've got passions, and I've got desires. What am I supposed to do? If I don't pursue money and things, what am I supposed to pursue? And what the New Testament says, and this is what, this is what makes Christianity different in its teaching than any other teaching. It says, be content with what you have, but don't be content with who you are. Now, the world reverses that. The world will come to you, and the world will say to you every single time, Oh, you are so great. Be who you are. You are so wonderful. You are so special. We have the dinosaur, the purple dinosaur that told us that we are loved and hugged and wonderful. Just be you. Just find yourself. But you need a little bit more stuff. You're really great if you just had a little bit better clothes. You're perfect just as you are, but you might need another car. You're not very respectable with what you have, but you're very special. See? The world says, be content with who you are, but don't be content with what you have. The New Testament comes and totally reverses it. It says, be content with what you have, but not with who you are. There is much work to be done in your life and who you are. There is much that you should be discontent about in your heart and your relationship to God and who you are as a person and how you relate to other people. See, you should be dissatisfied, not with what you have, but where you're at. This is, this is blasphemy in our culture. Heresy, really. Look at what he says, verse 11. 1 Timothy 6. We need accurate perspective about desire. We should desire not things, but we should desire more of God in our life. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness. Godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. I love that phrase, don't you? You see, what the Bible does is it takes you out of the need for a mansion and it puts you on a battlefield. It makes you a soldier. It says that this life, as short as it is, it's like being called to Afghanistan and we got to fight to fight. We got a battle to win. We are enlisted in the army of God. We are to fight for our faith. This life is never going to be, listen, heaven will be great. There's going to be no sickness, no crying, no pain. Jesus said, I'm going to go make a mansion for you. You're going to get all kinds of great stuff in heaven. You're going to get wonderful things in heaven. But now we are in a battle. Now the world comes to us and says, wait a minute. Whoa. Settle down there, Beavis. That's from my high school. I'm sorry. I was lost at that time. Settle down, Beavis. This is the only life you've got. You only live once. You better, you better get all you can now. You better, you better live it up now, man. I mean, this is it. See, the world really doesn't believe in an afterlife. And when you don't believe in an afterlife, then you will clamor for more things and money. And Paul is like, look, there's an afterlife. There's eternal life. So you should pursue those things that are invisible but last forever. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Let me go on. I'm 
slowing down too much. He says there in verse 12, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What's the good confession? Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's the good confession. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about, he's saying, you know what he's saying there? He's saying, um, he's saying, think about Jesus. And Jesus is standing there before Pilate and Pilate's like, look, dude, this is my paraphrase of the Bible. Look, Pilate said, look, dude, I want to get you out of this thing. I don't, you know what I mean? Like, help me help you get out of this thing. I, don't, I really don't think you should be killed up on a cross. I don't think you should be crucified. What, I mean, talk to me, man. Talk to me, and I'll try to get you out of here. And Jesus' confession was, I exist for the Father's will. I exist to please God. And, and, and what was at stake was he either, he either gets out of the deal, gains all of the kingdoms of the world, gains all the popularity, mega church, overthrows Rome, temporarily becomes king of Israel, or he gives it all up for the sake of the Father's will for something that lasts forever. Verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. He, Jesus, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly, that which is truly life. O oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the, from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, the reason why I labor to read all of that to you is because I want you to see something very important about your desire. You have desires. You have desire for pleasure. You have desire for riches. You have desire for a certain kind of prosperity. And the overreaction to the prosperity gospel is that the way to be content, this is the bad way to, to approach this, this is bad perspective. The way to be content is to lessen our desire. It is to lessen our passions. The way to contentment is not to desire as much, see? That's a lot of Christian teaching. It comes to us and it says, dummy, stop having all these desires for pleasure. One of my favorite books on contentment is an old book called The Christian Jewel of Contentment. It was written by an English Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. A great book, probably one of the best books on contentment outside of the Bible. But it's not perfect, and Burroughs uh, uh, teaches what I think is a, a false application to the way of contentment. And he talks about 
lessening our desires. Now listen to this quote. Do you need to stand up and jump around to listen to a really long, boring quote? Are you good? All right, listen really carefully. It's really good. He says, quote, It is as fitting for me to bring my desire down to my circumstances as it is to raise up my circumstances to my desire. But though a man cannot bring his circumstances to be as great as his heart, yet if he can bring his heart to be as little as his circumstances to make them even, this is the way to contentment. You see what he's saying. He's like, make your desires as small as your circumstances, and then you will be content. This is an ancient teaching about contentment. You just need, you don't need more things, you need less desires. That's a bad perspective about desire. That's not what Paul says. Paul doesn't tell us that we have too much desires. What Paul tells us is Paul says to us, and this is the accurate perspective about desire, Paul says we don't have enough desire. That when our desires are limited by money and possessions and material things, our desires are not too large, they are too small. That we were made to desire God, which is infinitely this massive object of our desires. And we cannot be satisfied until we meet, know, and we're growing in Christ and knowing God. In fact, he says about God in this very passage, he says in verse 17, that God provides enjoyment. God is the source of desires. He says in verse 19 that God wants us to take hold of that which is truly life. Think about what Jesus said. Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Which I know prosperity gospels, preachers, what they do on TV with the big collars and the big hair and the eyelashes and all that stuff. They say the abundant life is more things. But that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus is talking about something that money can't buy. Jesus was saying, and Paul is saying, that there is a, there, there, a wealthy person, a rich person, has nothing to do with money or possessions. A wealthy, rich person is somebody who is finding and discovering their desires are being fulfilled in God, in Christ, and God's life for them. This weekend might shock you to know, over the weekend on movie night, we watched Alice in Wonderland. But this was the one with Johnny Depp, which I do agree is better than the cartoon. Kind of. Sort of. But I love, I, I just, I almost started weeping when I was walking. You know, I've got, I'm sitting there in the dark living room. My girls are sitting there with me. And, and if you're new around here, I've got four girls. So this explains Alice in Wonderland. Girly, cartoon, you know what I'm saying, Disney movies. And uh, I've had to watch this movie so many times. So you start looking for new stuff in these movies. Amen. You parents know what I'm talking about. But I love the scene when the Mad Hatter is talking to Alice. And he says to her, he says this line, I wrote it down. He says, you're, he says, you're not the same as you, as you were before. Before you were much more muchier. He says, you've lost your muchness. And Alice says, my muchness? And he points to her heart. He points to her heart and he says, in there. 
And I went, Dad gummit, that works with my sermon. <laughs> Allison theology from Alice in Wonderland, you know what I mean? <laughs> God, God is about muchness. He's not anti-muchness. God is not anti-muchiness. And God created you originally to be full of muchiness. And what's happened to our world and our fallen nature is not that our desires have gotten too much, they've gotten too little, and we settle for mud pies, as C.S. Lewis used to say. You settle for mud pies when God has offered you a vacation at the sea. You, You settle for money and things, which is stupid, when God has given you invisible things that are totally fulfilling, totally wonderful, and they bring muchiness back to your life. You have to have an accurate perspective about desire to begin to walk in contentment. And you have to know that your Father in heaven, your Maker, your Creator, made you with passion and desire and enjoyment. Of course you're in pursuit. You're in pursuit of Him and His kingdom and all that He has for you. And a distraction is those things in this world that are so temporary and superficial. Oh, so small in comparison It turns out that Christian contentment is merely the correct management of our dissatisfaction. We have to manage our dissatisfaction and say, you know, God gave me this dissatisfaction not to try to find it in things, but to to find satisfaction in Him. God wants us to be content with what we have, but not with who we are, and in particular, Not with our passions. And so that's why he tells us pursue righteousness. That's why he tells us to fight the good fight. That's why he tells us to take hold of eternal life. And that's why he even points to Jesus with this one of the greatest doxologies ever. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He dwells in in, in beautiful light. Jesus is beautiful and wonderful and exquisitely, infinitely glorious. And as as you take the living water from Jesus, as you go to him for your source of pleasure, he will fill your cup finally. But if you take your your cup to get it filled up anywhere else it's like it's got a hole in the bottom it's going to fall right through and you're wondering why can't i get satisfied remember the gospel the real secret to beginning that process of Finding satisfaction in God is to look ultimately to the cross and the gospel. I love, I'll close with this and we'll take communion. I, I just I really, I really, 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 really love verse 20. When he says, Tim, he says, Timothy, he even puts an O. I love the O. That's like one of my favorite words in the Bible. Every time you see O in the Bible, you, you should go, Oh! It's like a cry of dust. Please. Oh, Timothy. David does it a lot in the Psalms too. Oh, the Lord is good, he says. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's sweeter than honey, don't you know? Oh, it's good. Oh, Timothy, he says, guard the deposit. Yeah. 
how can I really walk in this accurate perspective about money and desire? How can I really do it? And he, he tells Timothy and he tells us, guard the deposit. <laughs> and he's referring to the gospel. The gospel is the deposit. There's your real wealth. What is the gospel? It's described in the New Testament in economic terms all over the place. The gospel is that Jesus purchased something. Jesus, by his blood, redeemed us. Jesus died to purchase what we could not buy with money. And what... What is it that he bought? He bought our salvation. He bought the whole thing. He bought the complete thing. You don't have to work for your salvation. Jesus went to work, man. Jesus, he, he, he timed in in the flesh. He walked. He fulfilled the law of God. He died on the cross. He rose on the third day. And the reason why was so he could knock down the wall of, of hostility that existed between us and God so that we could pursue God, so that we could walk into the kingdom, so that we could go and taste and see finally in forgiveness, in redemption. Guard that deposit more than the deposits that you guard on the first and the 15th of the month. Here's the deposit that is the power for our contentment. And how do you know when the gospel is beginning to work in your heart contentment? How do you know when these perspectives, is there a way to measure, I'll close with this, is there a way to measure contentment in your life? Am I content? Ask yourself that. Am I content? How could I know if I'm content? There's two ways. You know you're content if you can love the rich. If you can love the rich without resenting them or envying them, then you know that you are beginning to walk in contentment because you have a perspective that says, my life is not measured against what this person has, so I can enjoy this person, I can enjoy what they have without envying them or going, oh, that materialistic fool. Because the gospel is my deposit. The gospel and God in my life, that is what makes me rich. So you know you are walking in contentment if you can love the rich. Secondly, you know you are beginning to walk in contentment. These perspectives on money and desire are taking root when you can respect the poor. You can respect the poor without feeling superior to them because you have more things than they do. You can respect them without pity. You don't pity the poor. You don't go, oh, man, it is so sad that their clothes don't smell as good as mine. Because life is not measured by how your clothes smell. Please wear deodorant if you can afford it, but you know what I'm saying. Life is not measured by these things. So the gospel reorients the way that we measure lifestyle, the way that we define what is good and, and right, and it has nothing to do with what anybody has. And a poor person in our life has every way of access to God that we do and is saved the same way we are, which is through forgiveness and grace, not by what they have or don't have. And if you can respect the poor without feeling superior to them, why would we feel superior to the poor? We're saved by grace. My gosh, spiritually, we're so impoverished. We were homeless when Jesus met us. 
So there'd be no reason to feel superior to them. And we don't pity them because of what they don't have. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these accurate perspectives. I thank you so much that you reveal the truth. I thank you that the truth sets us free. I thank you, God, for um, I really thank you for your mercy. It says here at the end of First Timothy, Lord, it says, "Grace be with you." And I thank you for that grace, that that measure of your love and the promise that you make us a priority, even when we don't deserve to be a priority, even when we're unlovely, you love us. Even when we are not worthy, you, you seek us out with zeal, with passion, you seek us out. Thank you for that grace. We're going to take communion this morning, and I just want you to know, everybody is invited to our communion table. If you are a believer, even if you're visiting today, you're welcome to take communion with us. But if you're not a believer, if you're investigating Christianity or you're exploring it or um, seeking answers, but you've not decided that Jesus is the Son of God or your Savior, um, I am so glad you're here and you are loved more than you know. But I'd, I'd just ask you not to take the elements with us today and just to observe this spiritual meal and this memorial to our Savior. And I pray that uh, as you don't take the physical elements, that you would take the spiritual truth that Jesus died for you and that he rose on the third day. But what we're going to do now is the first half of the sanctuary is going to come up to the table in front and the second half is going to go to the table in the back. Um, if you are unable to walk, and um, then our ushers will be looking for you to raise your hand and just indicate that you need elements brought to you, and we'll have them brought to you. But um, let's just, I'm going to pray one more time, and then come up and get the elements. Don't take, we'll take all together. We'll eat and drink together, so wait for me to indicate when that's right. But after this prayer, just come forward or go in the back, grab uh, the juice and the bread, and we'll take communion together. Lord. I pray for this meal. It's a memorial. We want to remember Jesus forever, that you died, that you gave your body, and you shed your blood for our forgiveness and for our sins. So we just come before you. We acknowledge that we are sinful, and yet we acknowledge the good news that we are forgiven by faith in you. And I just pray that you'll bless this meal to our church and to our lives and in our worship of you. Make it meaningful. And, um, and Lord, work in us, work in our lives right now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.